The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. The scripture reading this morning is from Philippians 2, 1-11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation from the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You may be seated. If you are in kindergarten through fifth grade and you would like to go to children's church, please join our volunteers over by the kids' zone side, which is that way. Well, good morning. Thank you, Liz. Um, it seems like about six months ago, we were in this room, which uh, it was six months ago, uh, and then something called COVID happened. And so uh, we're glad to be back uh, here, um, so it seems a bit surreal, but we are glad to be back. Um, this has been done. Uh, we have a, a COVID committee, a COVID team of, of just great um, folks who are really thoughtful and, and knowledgeable, and so um, they've helped us do different things like the outdoor service, the services in the Peyton in here. So. Um, we are grateful for their work this morning. Um, we are <clears throat> going through and continuing our study of Philippians. Uh, we are starting the second chapter. We're a few weeks in. Um, and I, I don't say this hyperbolically. I really do think this is a perfect time to hear something like this, um, a passage like this. It's dense and it's uh, beautiful. And so um, as we begin this morning, it's amazing to see how this particular passage speaks to the grand view of life and also the small, minute things. And so, um, however this does affect you, I do offer and um, invite you to bring those things of your life uh, into this morning and see how the Lord does work. Uh, With that in mind, I want to begin um, by telling y'all something that happened last Sunday. Uh, Last Sunday, uh, Alex Smith took um, a snap as the quarterback under center for the Washington football team. Um, Alex Smith is someone who hadn't taken an NFL snap in 700 days. And that's because in November 2018, Alex Smith had a compound fracture on his leg and he was um, playing the Houston Texans. He was rushed to the hospital and, um, and they did a great job taking care of him. They had a, a routine surgery, fixing his leg, and they thought everything was great uh, and peachy. Uh, one day went by and recovery was going well. Two days went by. Recovery was going well. On the third day, they started to notice things about Alex's body. 
this pro quarterback in great health, um, suddenly wasn't responding. Uh, suddenly he became septic, um, which in the medical world is not a good thing. And so uh, they slowly and kind of began to talk, uh, all these doctors, and they realized he has an infection. Uh, the infection was called uh, necrotizing fasciitis. Necrotizing fasciitis is a rapidly spreading uh, flesh-eating infection. I don't mean to sound uh, too um, gross in explaining it, uh, but it's one that spreads fast and it is fatal. It's an infection that attacks the body. And because of that, um, the doctors acted quickly and they said to Alex Smith's wife, they said, our first priority is going to be to save his life and then uh, we're going to do our best to save his leg. Anything beyond that, they said, is a miracle. And of course, as we know, the story is, he just took a snap in his back playing. Intervention was required for something that was so routine and yet there was a window from infection and infection took over. And, and Paul is writing to the Philippian church, a church in Philippi, it's far off, and he started. And he's writing to them and imploring them uh, in the same similar manner. Uh, there has been uh, an infection in their community, and he's writing in an intervening way with an antibiotic, with a solution, an antidote. Uh, they are experiencing disunity, and he gives them the solution. He gives them the fix. The, the fix, the antidote, the antibiotic of humility is what Paul writes uh, to the Philippian church. And so as we look through this second chapter of Philippians, um, we'll see and unpack three different uh, points and ideas in these 11 verses. First, uh, the infection of self-glory. Second, the antibiotic of humility. And third, uh, the holistic healing and health of uh, humility. And so... With that in mind, um, let's pray as we study God's word this morning. Lord, you have um, brought uh, everyone here this morning who's in this room and also uh, watching uh, on a screen. And there are things that have brought us to this place, things uh, maybe um, like fatigue, we find ourselves this morning tired, and maybe we come this morning out of routine and, and out of um, a sense of duty even, and maybe we come with uh, really great exciting joys because we're at a season where things are going well. Uh, Lord, wherever each person is, would you uh, meet all of us this morning in a way that Holy Spirit does encounter our souls, and we do encounter the living God, and we see uh, the humility of Jesus, something that was for us, not just something that was done. So Christ, meet us this very day, we pray. Amen. So first, uh, the inf infection of self-glory. Uh, again, Paul is writing in jail. He's writing uh, as he's chained up, and, and someone from the Philippian church has come to bring him food. And that day, you wouldn't uh, be served a meal in prison. Someone had to bring you things. And so as he's brought food he, and different things, he sends back to the Philippian church a letter. And it's an encouraging letter. It's to build them up. They're most likely uh, facing persecution. If, they, if it was a reality or it was a, a probability, 
They were facing persecution. And so Paul writes to a persecuted church. And in this uh, second chapter, uh, some versions, the first word is so. Others, it's, it's therefore. And so do as our high school English teachers would have us. And we got to ask, why is uh, there, therefore? Uh, what is therefore, therefore? And at the very end of chapter 1, Paul is writing and says, uh, I am suffering and you are suffering, and we are suffering together for the same cause. And he says the, the line at the end, towards the end of chapter 1, he says, whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And he's writing here words that would unify them because they felt the weight of disunity and division. And so he implores them, the opening words Uh, He gives them categories, and he says, So if there is any encouragement, if any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection, if there is any of these things, he says, be of the same mind, uh, of the same love, and of one mind. Paul is writing to a disunified people, so why are they disunified? Why is he giving the solution of unity, of one-mindedness, They're disunified because each of them are seeking this idea of individual notoriety, individual attention, and self-glory. All these different individuals are making up the church in Philippi, and yet there's disunity because they're all seeking everything for their own individual good. And Paul writes to them for the sake of unity because disunity is this infection. It, it, it spreads. It, has this, um, it, it makes its way into a crack, the potential for it to spread, and then it goes more and more and more, and it becomes great until all of a sudden the body is against itself. Uh, that's the, the function of an infection, and it's a trick that uh, happened then, and it happens now in us. It's not a new trick. It's an old one, actually. This idea of infection, that, uh, that uh, infection longs to exist more and more and more and more. Right, you see it in your favorite bands. All of a sudden, the bass player is upset with the lead singer because they get all the attention and they're left in the shadows. Uh, and some bands survive that. You see it in the company in the C-suites where uh, the uh, CEO looks to the operating officer and says, what this company needs is me. I am the reason I'm holding everything together. It's because I am so important. I'm the glue. And division quickly ensues. And they're at odds. You see it in relationships where the smallest fragmentation, maybe a slight word or a way a word is said, all of a sudden grows and grows and grows. It begins small and it only exists to exist more. That's what uh, the infection of disunity is, and it stems from this idea of, I am so important. I am so important. But Karl Marx, the, the one who we learned about in history class, is also the one who wrote a book called The Communist Manifesto. And Karl Marx uh, said, I am nothing, and I should be everything. Man, the poor denuded creature must repress his smallness. So his solution to being small and and, uh, the possibility of being great is suppressing his smallness, 
repressing the thing that is the liability of him so that his potential could grow, so that he could be big, so he could be large, so he could be relevant. That's his solution to this idea of feeling small. But the fruit of this is only a self-congratulatory way of living uh, that suppresses not only our smallness, but others' smallness as well. Seeking self-glory grows like an infection. It exists only to exist more and more and more and take everything in its path. It cannot be rivaled. And we are hungry for our own glory, are we not? It's not an individual problem of just you and not the person next to you, and, or, or just you and not me, but across the board. Uh, that this idea of self-glory exists to exist more, and, and we fight for an experience of our own glory. And, and when we're starved for it, we become violent. Now, I'm not saying you get your, um, your bats out and, and begin being really physically violent, but there are expressions of this violence when it comes to being uh, glory-starved. Tim Keller says that uh, we feel like we are cosmically insecure. We are touchy, irritable, not getting what we deserve, so we fight. That is, the heart that fights is one that is glory-starved. The heart that fights is one that is glory-starved. And suddenly when we are glory-starved, of course, disunity is a result. How we shun others around us because we ourselves are the most important ones. And our insecurity takes us to different places. Maybe it's pride, that we are our greatest PR agent. We are the one to bolster ourselves up to the watching world. Maybe it's, maybe it's slander of suppressing others, of cutting them down in a way that we are just higher because they are lower. Uh, maybe it's gossip because you usurp someone's dignity only to define them as the worst thing about them and spread it like wildfire. Use them for that. Maybe it's greed. Maybe uh, you want more and, and so that they can have less. To get ahead is to have more. Maybe it's manipulation that if you can have someone doubt themselves, then maybe you can get ahead. The infection of self-glory asks so much of us, and that's a great thing of maintenance because it exists to exist more and more. Another pastor said that uh, the natural condition of the human ego is this. It's empty, painful, busy, and fragile. This morning, I would ask of you, it it may not be a direct correlation, but when have you felt the involvement of self-glory And as a result, you feel the things like emptiness. And you feel a pain-ridden as you pursue the self-glory. You feel busy, like you have to have the wheels keep on turning because it's never enough, this idea of maintaining self-glory. And you also feel fragile. You feel fragile, breakable, uh, volatile maybe. Perhaps the common ingredient of this is our own self-insecurities of maintaining how great we have to be, uh, the infection of self-glory. So, if uh, disunity is this fruit of a root of seeking self-glory, what's the antibiotic? And it's humility. Paul writes the the second idea of uh, the antibiotic 
antibiotic of humility. An antibiotic is something I'm not at all involved in medicine or know, I know so little about it. But it's something that does fight an infection, right? It's something that, that helps um, the growth of something bad. It fights it off. It helps your body push it away because maybe your body can't fight it itself. And humility is the antibiotic that Paul gives, like we read in verses 1. It says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Paul is saying if there's any of those things, if that's the truth, if that's, if that's true, then. And he's saying in, in verses 2 and on, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. He's saying to the division that the solution has become one. This fragmentation, uh, the solution obviously is to bring it all back together. Uh, make it all uh, work. Make it all one. And he's saying the way you do it is this. Don't look at yourself Look out for others. Not your, not your own glory, but theirs. Not, not your interest, but the interest of others. And here, uh, Paul uses a word, uh, vain conceit, some translations say. And uh, this idea of uh, vain conceit is in the Greek, a compound word. Um, there's two thoughts in it. It's, it's um, keno, empty, and, and doxa, glory. That is, in vain conceit, there is, in the pursuit of yourself, there is, it's void of glory, empty of glory. And Paul is writing to them saying, this is what you will reap. This is the, this is the fruit, this is what you're going to have. Because there's such a temptation to pursue your own glory, your own kingdom, your own self, and live in light of that. Paul is saying to, to fight the drive of self-glory, the only medication is humility. Now, if you want me to be honest, I got up early this morning, I showered, I hopped in the car, I drove and got things together for this morning, and every motion of that, everything I did, the thought in my mind was, is what I'm about to do right here, is it going to be good enough? Right, will, I be, will I be worth my salt and will y'all approve of me? It's nice because all eyes are on me right now. And maybe all, all eyes are on me and I have such a great importance because I have all your eyes and all your ears. And that's a thwarted thought for many reasons. But it's thwarted because it's saying, I am going to eat what I kill. However good I do is how worthy I am. And humility says, something different. The ethic of humility says, I am not worth how good this is. And the ethic of humility says, actually, there's more to me than just this. The ethic of humility says something different. So as we point out what humility is, we may need to point out what humility is not first. If humility is an antibiotic, it fights what we can't fight maybe on our own, uh, what is it not? Uh, first of all, humility is not southern niceness. Humility is not southern niceness where you smile and you wave, and as your teeth are closed, you say something under your breath. Because that requires nothing of you other than an exterior motion and no interior alteration. 
Humility is not southern niceness. Humility is not a daily checking the box. Um, how good you did that day of how you uh, complimented your coworkers or how you held the door open for everyone or how you uh, tipped the person really nice who was serving you at a restaurant. That's not humility because quickly those boxes can become um, a portfolio you make of how well you did and especially when it's compared to others. It's something that is more of comparison than it is of a true change. And then lastly, of many other things, this morning we should point out that that humility is not using Jesus for our own gain. That Jesus isn't there to be a chess piece for you to move when it's convenient. I don't just say that. In Scripture we hear a story in Matthew 20 where... um, the mother of James and John, comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, when you are exalted in your kingdom, can my two sons, my boys, can they sit at your right and your left? Um, can they get the, the, the top of the list, the A-list treatment? Can they be a, a shoe-in? Can they get first dibs? And it says in Matthew 20, uh, right after she said that to Jesus, it says the, the, the disciples were indignant. And they were mad. They're frustrated. And you can think, well, they're probably mad because she had the audacity to ask that, which is true. But they're also upset because they themselves weren't the ones to ask it. They wish they had beaten her to the punch and said, Jesus, can I be at your right and you're at your left? Can, can I get the, the first dibs? And Jesus goes on and says to the mother who's asked this and to his disciples, he says in Matthew 20, Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The core of humility, the central attribute of humility, the main characteristic of humility is this. The only way I am involved in humility is that I am not involved in it at all. The way you are involved in humble living is that you are not involved in it at all. Humility doesn't involve the person. It involves everyone but us. C.S. Lewis writes in his book, Mere Christianity, uh, towards the end of it in his uh, chapter on uh, pride, he writes at the very end, the closing sentences, um, a notable quote about humility and how it combats pride. And he says this, I know it's hard to be read to, but he says, uh, to even get near humility, even for a moment, is like a, a drink of cold water to a man in a desert. He goes on and says, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he's nothing. He won't tell you he's a nobody. Probably all you will think about him, he says him, but but he obviously means he and she. All you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you had to say to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. 
the central core attribute of humility is that the only way it involves us is that it doesn't involve us at all. And to think it's anything different than that is to distort it. And so this morning, I do want to ask you this. In your fantasy world, when you have a moment of quietness and stillness, and it's just you and your thoughts, and as you begin to think, and as I begin to think, there's this fantasy world where, where, where you are queen, and you are king, and you reign. You're the one that calls the shots, and you're the one that fabricates reality. In that fantasy world, who are you thinking of, and how do you think of them? In your fantasy world, where you, where you and I go, who do you think of, and how do you think of them? Uh, do you think of your colleagues in a way of, somehow I can use them to get ahead? Maybe I can use them as a stepping stone. Um, Do you think of the last gross interaction you had with the people you live with? Uh, You define them that way, and and actually you're waiting, and you're replaying those scenes so that in the future, when you're king and queen, you can have a powder keg for them to step on. And you're waiting for them as you're rehearsing the scene to get justice and, and feel good about it. In our fantasy world where we rule and no one else we view the, dis- the disgusting failures of someone else as worse than our own. Because maybe if they're as worse than us, we can be a little better than them. Where do you go in your fantasy world? But the question is, who do you think of and how do you think of them? The, this change of humility um, is what Paul is writing in, in, in giving an imperative to. It's the antibiotic that fixes the things that we can't fight ourselves. This self-glory, this throne we sit where we're king and queens. And it can be tempting to think, I just have to muster it up and just begin to think outward more, outward more, outward more. You know, if I really do value more people than myself, I'll be a little better, a little better. And the beautiful thing about this passage is that Paul doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop at verse Four, where he gives the imperative to don't think about yourself. Just do a little better. He actually goes on. And he's saying that's what you're to do, but here's how it looks. You should look to others, but here's what it looks like. And this is our last idea, third point of the holistic health of humility. The holistic health of humility. Paul is robbing us of a temptation in a good way, he, he's freeing us of saying it's not all about how you construct humility in your life. Because in verse 5 and on, he says this. You can read along. He says, in light of all of that, you should be humble. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It's theirs in Christ Jesus. Who, Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in a human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul is saying, you want to know what humility really looks like? Christ, the eternal Son of God, 
in heaven. He, 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 he uh, emptied himself of glory. Keno doxa. He emptied himself of glory. And he came and he gave up the, the, the glory of heaven while still remaining his divine power, his divine qualities. He came, identified with the lowly, that is us, born in the stable. We know these stories. Humbled himself, not only in birth, but in death, to a painful, shameful death, uh, even death on a cross. And what's the result? Paul says, therefore God exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name. Uh, this idea that he's experienced uh, defeat and death, and yet his victory over it is what defines him. A name that's above every name at the name of Jesus, even the utterance of his name brings worship, and it brings glory to God. God is pleased by everything the Son has done. So if we look at this, um, these dense six verses, we can note one thing, and that is uh, the pinnacle of humility, it says, is at the death of Christ, the death on the cross. That's humble for God to die in a shameful, painful way. And yet, also at that same way, the pinnacle of Christ as king is on a cross, so if, if the pinnacle of humility and the, and the pinnacle of his kingship are on the, at the same place, we can point out that the coronation of Christ as king was at the cross. That when he was king, he was always there as king, and it's truly seen as the humble king on a cross. And that is to show this. At the deepest parts Christ is most glorified and powerful as king. And that the road for you and I of humility is a road that's walked before and we aren't pioneers on. It's a road set out for us. It's a road uh, made by Christ. One uh, theologian said this, he says, only when you get love, approval, and esteem from someone you esteem, will you, have, uh, will you ever have self-esteem? So uh, if you get esteem from someone you esteem, you will have self-esteem. If you get love from someone you love, you will feel loved. If you see what humility is like from a humble person, it's that much easier to walk in humility. It's not up to you and I to, to, to construct a path of humility. It's actually one that's already been walked before and shown before and that is to do something to us. That the life of humility is a life of freedom. Because we're free uh, from, from belittling others. We're, we're free uh, from self-campaigning and the drudge thereof. We're free of the angst of approval. Why? Because when we go low, instead of making ourselves great, we know that when Christ was made great, even at the point of death on a cross, he can make something great out of the points of life we feel like our, uh, the valley. Christ says the path of humility is a great path, not because of strength, but because of weakness. He incarnated with the lowly. Uh, it's a path of living freely, not by self-independence or self-discovery, but a path of clinging to Jesus because it's there you cling to a name that's above every name. It's, it's a path of healing when you show your wounds, not, not hide them. 
Because when you do that, you remind yourself he died to live again and he can do something with these scars. And the path to health, holistic health, every part of you is humility. Not hubris because he left everything only to gain the vast victory and be a name above every name. Every part of us is affected by the humble life of Christ because every part of us is called into a humble pattern and a humble ethic of the Christian life. Uh, That Jesus is pleased, or God is pleased with the work of Jesus, and that's a work that goes low, and therefore, he can be pleased with us as we go low. Uh, My uh, cousin is from Texas, and he played football in Texas, and you know that in Texas, there are no rules at all. Uh, It's a lawless place. And so, uh, the football coaches would have them do excruciating workouts, you know, in the hot summer heat in the mornings. And one of those workouts was um, at the, the playground. And they would go to the playground and they'd do the monkey bars and they would uh, make them do it over and over again. I don't know why, but they would. And their hands would bleed. And you think that's, that's awfully cruel of the coaches. What's more cruel is that they would just stand there with a the hose and hose down the blood off of the monkey bars as they would go and go and go. It sounds amazingly cruel. The only thing about it is that the coaches were the first ones to do it and to show all of the players this is how it's done. And they would go, and even the coaches' hands would bleed. The road of humility and the path of humility is something that reminds us that we are not being asked of something that has not already been done. His hands were the first ones to bleed so that when our hands bleed, we don't have to wonder and try to make sense of it. That's the kind of Savior we have. That even as your hands are bleeding, uh, he can show you his and say, all will be okay. The Father is pleased with me, therefore the Father is pleased with you. And therefore you can go low. Living the Christian life means finding how your story connects into the story of Jesus. And so this morning I would offer you that, yes, uh, self-glory is something that plagues us all, and yes, humility is an antibiotic that fights that off, but it's only possible when you know what the incarnate person of humility looks like and does, and how he leads you on the path he's already walked of saying, I'm with you in the mountains and in the valleys. It's all mine, and I'll lead you home. Let's pray. Lord, you remind us that um, we belong to you not because uh, you simply say words, but because you have become incarnate. You've proven it. You've you've embodied it. And so, when the rigor of our lives do scream for explanation, may we know that as our hands bleed, uh, Christ's hands have bled first, and those wounds have bought us. They claim us. And they say to us, don't worry about fretting over your own kingdom because I'm inviting to you to one that is built into one that says, 
We don't have to ask you to, and beg you to stand at your right and at your left, but Lord, instead, you've asked us to walk the road you've walked. Because in the end, we will experience the life you experience. Holy Spirit, would you be a comforter to us this very day? And also, Lord, an encourager, a paraclete, an interceder, as we seek to walk the road of humility, knowing Christ did the exact same. And as we know and walk this road, may we know that what's true of Christ is true of us. And that's the place of confidence. Be with us now, Christ, the one who bears the name above every name. Amen.